1 through to verse 19. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of all, most of whom are, all st- are still living, though some have fallen asleep. <clears throat> then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did, he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Could you have that page open in front of you? It's page 1156. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Trisha spoke on the cross, and here we are. Uh, I'm speaking on the resurrection. Uh, a lot of you are away at Easter, and uh, it seemed to us really important that these two twin pillars of our faith are firmly grasped and understood because everything rests on them. And I'm going to begin by asking a question. Why is it that every Sunday in Christian churches up and down the land and internationally do we say the creed which begins, I believe? And the reason is that it states the non-negotiable elements of the Christian faith. So the Apostles' Creed, which comes up here, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. No ifs, no buts, no qualifications. And those words have been said by the Christian church for hundreds and hundreds of years. Because 
they're really important. Thanks, Will. So when you hear some learned theologian say something about the resurrection that, well, it doesn't really matter if it happened, the important thing is that the disciples thought it did. Please, will you say one word? Rubbish. It was clearly significant to the Apostle Paul. In our reading, we heard these words. Look at them in verses 3 and 4. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And there is no room here, there, for anything but a real bodily resurrection. Today, however, Christians are often patronized as being rather naive. You may hear people say things like, well, if if this lovely make-believe story helps you, then that's fine. Yet we do have to do a lot of considering and thinking if we are to reach the same conclusion as Paul and the early church, that Jesus really did rise bodily from the dead. And I want to do this tonight under three headings. Evidence, objections, implications. Evidence, objections, and implications. The first thing to say is that there is evidence that he rose from the dead. I have four pieces of evidence. Here's the first one. All four Gospels agree that the tomb was empty. There are some differences in the accounts, as you would expect from different witnesses. However, they agree on the key facts. Second, the resurrection of Jesus, which is a problem for 21st century minds, is never argued in Scripture. Why would you argue about something that was widely accepted and known to be true? And it was widely accepted because, as Paul sets out in verses 5 to 7, there were so many witnesses at different times, including on one occasion to a crowd of over 500 people. Now, one Easter Sunday in my previous church, I glazed a petal of of a daffodil, and I ate it in front of the children. And I said, if you leave the church now and say, the vicar ate a daffodil, you'd say, well, I wonder if that's true. If 500 people came out and said, the vicar ate a daffodil, wouldn't you believe it? Incidentally, don't eat a daffodil, it makes you sick. (laughs) But the phrase I've always considered a weighty piece of evidence for the reality of the the resurrection is this. It appears in verse 6. Paul talks about the 500 witnesses and adds, almost as an aside, most of whom are still living. Why did he write that? Surely it's to register that if anyone had any doubts, they could talk to real live witnesses. Now that's a very dangerous thing to say unless you're certain of the facts. What Paul is saying is check it out for yourself. Ask them. That's my second piece of evidence. My third is this. Included in those appearances, one remarkable and in some senses rather amusing incident is recorded in Luke 24. Two of the disciples, one when told his name, Cleopas, are walking on the road to Emmaus when Jesus meets them. Now, I've always thought that this was a particularly valuable insight because it reveals the state of mind of the followers of Jesus immediately after his crucifixion. What is their state of mind? They are in despair. And you can hear it in the conversation. Jesus asks them what they're talking about. And we read from verse 17, they stood still, their faces downcast. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the the things that have happened there in these days? What things? 
Jesus asked innocently. About Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. Now, note, downcast faces, dashed hopes. And note, too, how they'd totally forgotten the significance of the third day. Jesus had again and again warned his disciples that he would be killed but would rise again after three days. For example, in Matthew 16, we read how when Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer, be killed, and on the third day be raised to life, Peter said, Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. The reason was that the idea of a Messiah who suffered and was killed was beyond their understanding. And the reason was that it was thought that suffering was sent by God as a punishment. Actually, that view is held today. When people suffer, they say, why me? Therefore, it simply could not be that the Christ should be crucified. And on each occasion when Jesus taught the necessity of his death and rising again, it simply didn't go in. They didn't remember it later. Which is why Jesus had to do a Bible study with the two men on the Emmaus Road. So we read in verse 27 of Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What a Bible study that must have been. You see, there is evidence for the Messiah being sent all the way through the Bible. And when eventually they recognized Jesus, what did those two men do? Just bear in mind, they'd walked from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is seven miles away. Well, they are so thrilled they walk back quite late in the evening, seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles how they had met him. And they're met by the apostles who in turn tell them that Peter had also seen the risen Jesus. Here in all these appearances is the explanation of a real puzzle. How was it that a small group of despairing followers were transformed later to be accused of turning the world upside down. The power came from their belief in the reality of the resurrection. They had seen with their own eyes that Christ had conquered death. Now the final piece I would put to you, the final piece of evidence is Thomas. I've always felt history has been unfair to poor Thomas. Just imagine it, stuck with the word doubting, forever linked to his name. After all, faced with the irrefutable evidence given by Jesus' appearance, he changed his mind. He should be called Believing Thomas. When the disciples excitedly told him that Jesus had risen, he refused to believe it. Sometimes the news is so good, you hardly dare believe it. And I think it was like that for Thomas, apart from the fact that it was unbelievable. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
Now, in my reflection on Thomas this Good Friday, I quoted from the NIV Study Bible, which comments this. Hard-hearted skepticism can scarcely go further than this. But, as I said, to give Thomas his due, when a week later Jesus comes to him and says, reach out your hand and put it into my side, he gives in completely. My Lord, my God. He acknowledges Jesus' identity, Jesus' divinity, and he makes a very personal response. And the resurrection of Jesus invites a response. And again, on Good Friday, I quoted the author who wrote this, the insistence of Thomas on tangible proof of resurrection lays to rest the argument that the disciples were credulous and deluded. And a former Lord Chief Justice said this, In its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. There is evidence, powerful, convincing evidence to me, that it really happened. So we move on to, secondly, the objections to the resurrection. Objections that it really did happen. And I've got four of them which are often laid before us. And these are ones which it's as well just to to think about because your friend may say them. First of all, the empty tomb theory. Some said the body was stolen by the authorities. Well, if they'd done that, the commotion that followed, that followed with the news of Jesus having risen, would have been stopped in its tracks by the authorities producing the body. Why didn't they produce the body? They couldn't. Second theory, the body was stolen by the disciples. Matthew records the religious leaders bribing the soldiers guarding the tomb to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. But we need to remember this. Many of the first Christians became martyrs. Would they have died for something that they knew to be a lie? Third objection is the swoon theory. Now this theory is still proposed as an explanation by people of other faiths today. The argument is put, that Jesus did not really die, but in the cool of the tomb, he recovered sufficiently to roll the stone away and to escape. This overlooks the fact that he was bound in grave cloths for burial together with 75 pounds of spices, which the study Bible states was a very large amount, such as was used in royal burials, and that the stone used to seal the tomb was incredibly heavy. So you have a man who has been crucified on a cross for several hours with nails through his hand and his side and somehow he is to get out of his tightly bound grave clothes with the ointment on it and push away a heavy stone designed to stop burial grave robbers. Is that likely? But there's another detail that fatally undermines this objection. John records that when Jesus was on the cross and a spear pierced his side, it brought a sudden flow of blood and water. Now that's an indication of death, where clot and serum separate. The study Bible footnote goes into more detail, saying that the blood and water was the result of the spear piercing the pericardium, the sac that surrounds the heart, and the heart itself. 
Now, what that tells us is that Jesus was really, really dead. The fourth objection is that all the witnesses, including the 500, were suffering from a mass hallucination. But consider this. Hallucinations, by their very nature, are personal and unique. And they're produced as a result of some longed-for event. But as our conversation between the two on the road to Emmaus demonstrated, Jesus' resurrection was not expected, despite the fact that he had told them several times. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection, I would therefore argue, is overwhelming. As a fact, not a fairy story. What then, then, are the implications for you and me living in London, getting ready to work on Monday morning? And the implications are all centered on Jesus, what we know about him and how that affects all of us who are his followers, those who believe and trust in him. First of all, the resurrection points to the identity of Jesus. You see, hundreds of people were crucified under the Romans. But what we believe is that this was unique. We know he performed numerous miracles over nature, calming a storm, over disease, healing, and over death. He brought a number back to life, including Jairus' daughter, which is actually depicted on the right-hand side in Alabaster. That's Alabaster. It's the most incredible piece of workmanship. Do go and have a look at it. He's got all the details there. And then, of course, there was the widow of Nain, Bear in mind that there were professional mourners there. They were quite sure they were dead. And, of course, his friend Lazarus. And it was just before he raised Lazarus that he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and I am the life. But it was the fact that he himself rose from the dead that pointed most clearly to his divinity, showing us, as we read in Acts 2, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And Jesus revealed his true identity when he stood before the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas, the high priest, said, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. From now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, what he's quoting there are the direct words of Daniel, which is why we need to understand the Old Testament references. And Daniel is describing what will happen when the Messiah comes. And so Jesus was claiming to be that person, claiming to have the majesty and authority belonging only to God. And his claim was recognized because immediately the high priest tears his robes and accuses him of blasphemy. But, of course, the resurrection proved his claim to be true. What about his achievement on the cross? The resurrection vindicated the work of Jesus on the cross. Caiaphas, the high priest in a discussion at the Sanhedrin, said this, It is better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. The Sunday Bible comments this. His words were true in a way he could not imagine. In reality, Caiaphas' words meant that Jesus' death would be for the nation, not by way of removing political trouble, 
which it didn't because in AD 70 Jerusalem was sacked, but by taking away the sins of those who believed in him. Jesus came to die on the cross to take our sin on himself and pay the penalty, the fixed penalty for sin, namely death. A life for a life. And anyone who believes and trusts in the living, risen Jesus will have their sins forgiven and receive, in exchange, a new life. Eternal life. That means that our life goes on beyond this physical life. It goes on forever. So death for the Christian is not a full stop. It's a comma, taking us into the very presence of Jesus. And Jesus very significantly said that he gave his life as a ransom. Now that's a very modern term. We know of people who are taken as hostages and ransom is demand, demanded. A ransom has to be paid to release from the imprisonment. He gave his life as a ransom to release us from the imprisonment of sin and death. And when God raised him from the dead, God was proclaiming that the ransom price had been paid and that all had been accomplished. We don't do it so much these days, but in the old days you sent your check in to pay the bill and then you got it back receipted, paid with thanks. It was the proof that the bill had been paid. The resurrection is God's proof that our debit our sin had been paid once for all by Jesus. And so the resurrection vindicated the work of Jesus on the cross. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, since Jesus rose from the dead, we Christians will rise from the dead too. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 wrote, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Now, let's face an awful alternative. What if the resurrection didn't happen after all? Paul, in our reading today from 1 Corinthians 15, sets out the awful prospect, if that is the case. Look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're wasting your time here. You're still in your sins. No exchange has happened. Nothing has happened. It was just another tragic death on a, on a cross. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, Christians who have died before, are lost. There's no future. Their life is a full stop. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied because we're living a lie. Isn't that devastating? However, thankfully, Paul continues, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, facing us with the awful prospect, and he deals with it. He then asserts what he believes and knows, because, of course, he too had met with the risen Christ. Here's the second thing for us. Since Jesus rose from the dead, we need not fear death. I'm going to give you a little challenge at the next party you go to. 
just go up to somebody and say, let's talk about death. It's a bit of a party killer, bit of a conversation killer, because in the 21st century, it's the one subject many find alarming because they have nothing to say. So we avoid talking about it. And it can be a kind of slavery holding people in its grip. So in Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15, marvelous verses, incidentally, this is what he wrote. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and listen to this, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So if you don't fear death because of your faith in the risen Jesus, you also need not fear the future. So if you go to a Christian funeral, yes, of course, there is bereavement, there is sadness, there is pain, there is loss. But together there is that wonderful other dimension, the Christian hope and certainty. And so in mission magazines, when one of their missionaries dies, they put, so-and-so has gone home. Gone home. I love that phrase. Where's your home? And we have what Peter calls in his first letter, a living hope, a certainty that heaven awaits us and a glory that can scarcely be imagined. And here's my third thing for us. Since Jesus rose from the dead, we who are united with him can enjoy his resurrection power in our daily lives as God intended us to do. Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, put it like this. Chapter 1, verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. It's a staggering thought. Jesus' resurrection power, God's resurrection power, is available for us. No wonder he wrote in the same letter, chapter 3, these very inspiring and well-known words. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, what is that power? It's the resurrection power. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. This is where we all cheer. We get those party poppers. We wave the banners. We say hallelujah a lot. So in conclusion, we know that Peter believed in the resurrection of Jesus. We know that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, certainly they did, Cleopas, we know his name. We know names of a number of those who saw the risen Jesus. James, for example. Paul did. Thomas did, in addition to all the other witnesses. But the question comes to each of us as it did to Thomas. It's a personal question. Are you able to echo with Thomas his words said as a result of his conviction of Jesus' resurrection? My Lord 
and my God. I'm able to do so. And I believe utterly in the resurrection of Jesus. Because I find the evidence overwhelming. Let us pray. Now let's spend a moment just to reflect. Maybe it was one thing that God has drawn to your attention. Something to reflect on. Something to encourage you. We live in a world which dismisses nearly everything that I've said. The evidence is there for you to reflect on. But above all else, for many who have believed and trusted in the risen Jesus, this is the most marvellous news, giving us a certainty about the future and the promise of God's resurrection power in our daily lives.